0: Joshua Yafa has been reporting in Ukraine, and when I spoke to him earlier this week, it was as if he'd taken on this unofficial project, chronicling all the things the war has broken in its path. He'd been spending time in an eastern city known as Izium. What immediately struck him as he arrived was that it wasn't just Russia making a mess of this region. Pushing Russians out, that was messy too.
1: Well, the first thing I saw on the way into town was a highway littered with shrapnel, glass, burnt-out Russian tanks by the side of the road. Essentially, the remnants of what had been this lightning-fast, super-successful Ukrainian counteroffensive that pushed Russian troops out of a zoom and basically chased them all the way down the highway. And you could see the after-effects of that chase on the way into a zoom. Huh. But when I got to the actual center of town, the, the the destruction is apparent immediately. I mean, the apartment buildings had clearly been bombed, shelled, caved in on themselves, rubble around town, holes in buildings where they had been shelled, buildings pockmarked with shrapnel, bullet casings. I mean, it was clear that war had swept through town. Uh, that was sort of unambiguous just in the physical look and and feel uh, of the city.
0: While he was in town, Joshua stayed in an abandoned apartment. There was plenty of available space. About half the city's residents fled the occupation, and they were only just beginning to return. He found himself living side by side with people who seemed just as broken as the city's infrastructure. People who, in order to survive, had twisted themselves to an invader's whims. And now... They were trying to
1: pick up the pieces. I had it easy. I was there for uh, a week. But the people who stayed under occupation felt like they had endured something that the people who left didn't understand and were being viewed with some suspicion as if those who stayed were collaborators.
0: Being labeled a collaborator can come with a heavy cost in Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky at one point warned that officials who did not hold their noses at the occupiers would be signing their own sentence. The question Joshua kept asking himself is how far local authorities were going to take this. Were teachers who returned to school during wartime collaborators? What about people who just needed something to eat?
1: During Yazum's occupation, just by definition, because the Russian military was in charge of the city and there was no Ukrainian state authority to be found, the people handing out humanitarian food aid were the Russian military. And if you took that humanitarian food aid from the Russian military, if you signed a piece of paper acknowledging you had taken it, did that make you a collaborator? I don't know. You know, after spending all those weeks in the Zoom this fall, I became convinced that it's pretty difficult in most cases to get into someone's psyche. There's so many motivations that overlap that determine someone's behavior, I mean, in any situation, but I think especially in something as fraught as occupation.
0: Today on the show, the psychological toll the war in Ukraine is leaving behind. Even after the bombed out buildings get cleaned up, locals are still wondering who they can trust. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. While you were in Ukraine, you met a man named Pavel Golub. Can you tell me about him? Like, what was the story of Pavel's war?
1: Pavel Golub is a young guy in his mid-20s who owned a cell phone accessories shop and distribution point in Izum. He stayed when the city was occupied. Why did he stay? Why didn't he flee? Hard to say. The explanation that he gives is that he had this shop. He had over $100,000 worth of inventory in a warehouse in Izum. And he thought that if he fled Izum and the city was taken over by Russia, that would be the end of... This really large investment, basically his entire, you know, business uh, investment capital outlay that he had uh, built up over many years would be lost. And that's why he stayed. That's what he says.
0: And I guess it would be hard to flee as a man of fighting age, too.
1: Sure. He had extended family in his Zoom. I and mean, they are always overlapping and complicating factors. But the fact remains, he stayed, like half the city, and ended up being stuck eventually in his Zoom as it was fully taken over by the Russian military.
0: How did his life change after the Russian military took over?
1: Well, Like so many people in Izum, especially in the early days of the occupation, one of the main problems that Pavel and his family faced was simply getting enough to eat, finding food, finding also basic supplies, medicine. The Russian military kind of periodically distributed food, but it was never enough, and it ran out, and people often left the distribution points empty-handed. And Pavel, along with a number of other men in, in town, were tempted by an offer that the Occupation Administration put out, which is those people who were willing to sort through rubble from basically the buildings destroyed and the fighting in the early days of the war and find and recover bodies and bring those bodies to a new burial site on the outskirts of town would be eligible for additional food aid and Pavel essentially found that to be an offer he couldn't refuse and at the same time feeling, at least as he told me, a pang of kind of civic duty that indeed, especially as spring turned into summer, there were bodies on the streets in a They were buried in shallow graves in people's yards on the side of the road. As Pavel told me, there were two bodies by the kindergarten uh, where uh, Mm -hmm. his son had gone to school before. The war, and that something needed to be done, especially as the weather warmed up and these bodies started to decay in the heat.
0: You tell about how he actually went to a building that had been, I think, pancaked, and he discovered the body of a girl he'd grown up with.
1: Yeah, in one of the first buildings that Pavel was essentially assigned to to, to recover bodies, he found his friend from school, Elena, who he recognized from that tattoo on her collarbone and and the ring on her finger. So this was really personal work for Pavel, as it was for everybody, and and, and as it kind of had to be in a place like Izum, which was a city. You know, it wasn't a village. It has the, the look and feel of a city, but a small enough city where, over the years, everybody gets to know everybody else.
0: But you can see how it's also problematic work. You're literally burying the bodies for the occupiers, which the bodies are evidence of what took place.
1: Absolutely. And this, this burial site on the outskirts of town where Pavel and others brought the bodies became one of the largest symbols of Russian war crimes in the war. Months later, when Ukraine recaptured Azum, uh, very quickly, the military and in, you, investigators discovered this mass grave site on the outskirts of town with nearly 500 graves, really showing the scale and the toll of the Russian occupation. So was he immediately
0: a target? As soon as Ukraine took the city back, they said, OK, this guy, Pavel, like we, we got to look into him.
1: Well, one of the first things that Ukrainian government does when it recaptures a town, village, any territory that had been held by the Russian army for any period of time is to go in and start looking for collaborators. Hmm. It happens in every place that the Ukrainian Military has recaptured quickly the Ukrainian police, the SBU, which is the main domestic security service, go in, start having their own lists that they've compiled during occupation, going house to house, collecting evidence, collecting statements, asking people who did what, what do you know about your neighbors? So it's a priority. Absolutely. And one of the people who was detained as part of this process in a was Pavel Golub, who was on day two or three after... Izum's liberation, arrested by men in camouflage with weapons wearing telltale blue armbands of Ukrainian forces and taken from his home, driven off in a direction that neither Pavel nor his family knew anything about. He was essentially disappeared.
0: Hmm. Did you feel like that was just after learning all the facts?
1: I don't know what Pavel did in Izum during occupation, I don't know if the Ukrainian authorities know exactly what Pavel did. And that's true for dozens, if not hundreds of cases in just a Zoom. And then if you start to multiply that by the number of towns and villages that were liberated all at once in a flash in September as part of this offensive across the Kharkiv region, you end up with just hundreds of places and thousands of potential suspects. So the the process, by definition, is going to be messy. And I think even Pavel understood that Hmm. what certainly has aggravated pavel and led him to be i think to put mildly disappointed in the process is that he was held at a facility essentially a makeshift jail for would-be or suspected collaborators for over a month wow he was eventually released he was questioned repeatedly the sbu looked into the case into what he did under occupation into the burials into Pavel's activities in Izum, and after all that time, he was released. So I would point less to my own judgment than to the apparent decision of the Ukrainian authorities that Pavel committed no crime. That said, opinion in Izum is still split about someone like Pavel. It's still split about so many people who found themselves in really uncomfortable, awkward, positions during the occupation. There are some people in the Zoom who say Pavel was a good, honest guy doing work that was unpleasant but necessary. And there are other people who say, you know what, there's just something about that guy that doesn't quite seem right. He seems to be have been a little bit too close to the Russians. You can find people who say both things. And, and the story actually was and is this unsolvable murkiness that gets to the heart of how fraught and complicated and dark something like occupation is.
0: Yeah, you tell the story of these two neighbors. And I'm wondering if you'll briefly tell it now, because to me, it really sums up just how murky things are in a kind of post-occupation situation, because these neighbors in a they had not really liked each other for a long time. And then this simmer became a full boil during the occupation, and now it's just raw feelings on both sides. Like they're saying they'll they'll never talk to each other. Can you explain?
1: One of the stories I came across in Izum, I think fair to say that the darkest and and grimmest, at least that I was aware of, was the case of someone named Mikhail Jos, who worked as a technician at a boiler room in Izum, and over the course of the occupation was repeatedly questioned, detained, and ultimately tortured quite horrifically by Russian forces. He was subjected to waterboarding, repeated electric shock, beaten uh, across the skull and the ears, and then finally subjected to a mock execution in which soldiers said they were going to take him to the forest, bury him in a ditch, shoot him. After all of this, several days of torture, he was released, but released with a final, not so much warning, but, but a kind of haunting clue as the lead Russian soldier who was, had detained him said, oh, and by the way, hello from your neighbor. And this neighbor was a woman named Victoria who lives across the street from Jos, who for many years had been in an, an antagonistic standoff with Jos, they didn't like each other and avoided each other for years. It was, in many ways, a kind of long simmering neighborhood feud that can happen anywhere and was rather ordinary until the Russian army came to Azum and the city was occupied and and ordinary went out the window. And as Jos tells it, this neighbor turned him into the Russians. And very quickly after Jos was released from this terrible ordeal, with this last clue about hello from your neighbor. He comes back home, Izum is liberated, and now he and his neighbor are still living across the street from one another, as if nothing has changed, even though, of course, everything has changed in these past six months.
0: Jos is not the only one who suspected his neighbor Victoria of collaboration. Joshua says there are multiple people in the neighborhood who say they saw her being quite friendly with Russian troops at a checkpoint near her house. At one point, she supposedly even pointed or motioned toward Jos. For what it's worth, Victoria herself denies these allegations. She claims she made nice with Russian soldiers because she had to. Whatever the truth, now both neighbors are dealing with the fallout.
1: Jos told me that his emotions spike all over the place. Sometimes he thinks about revenge, salivates about revenge. Other moments he thinks, you know what? She's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm just going to move on with my life. The neighbor in question has been detained and questioned by the SBU, also released. So apparently there was not evidence to charge her with uh, a crime, though investigations are ongoing as prosecutors We'll be very quick to tell you. No one should sleep too soundly. But she is essentially an outcast, a, par- a pariah. Most hmm. people on the block do consider her in some way complicit with the ordeal that Joe's faced. And uh, as w- another neighbor told me, these days she's, she's keeping a profile that's akin to lower than grass, quieter than water.
0: We'll be right back. As Joshua Yafis said, finding and prosecuting collaborators is a high priority for the Ukrainian government. Suspects get sent to filtration centers, where they're often held while being investigated. And then, if there's sufficient evidence, charges get filed in court. But the definition of collaboration remains murky.
1: Ukraine's law on collaboration was only signed by Zelensky into force in the spring. And it's very much a work in progress. One thing I heard over and over in a Zoom, that the law doesn't really know how to deal with teachers, for example.
0: Hmm. Why? Why teachers in particular?
1: Because there is a feeling that teachers, because education is so linked to ideology, potentially to propaganda, and gets into questions of history, culture, the denial of Ukraine's history that is really at the heart of Russia's invasion, that the educational sphere is so radioactive, and that Ukrainian teachers who agreed to teach the Russian program, essentially denying Ukrainian history, denying Ukrainian statehood, have to be reprimanded, have to be barred from the classroom at minimum. The problem is Ukrainian law doesn't really allow for teachers to be fired without cause. And that cause is not yet laid out in the law on collaboration. Just the mere fact of going back to the classroom doesn't seem to be a crime according to Ukraine's law on collaboration. Well, it can be difficult then to remove the teachers from the classroom and to bar them from the educational sphere for life, as many Ukrainian lawmakers and officials would like, without that being outlined in the law. That's that's a kind of blind spot in the law, according to some Ukrainian uh, officials. And Ukraine's parliament, the RADA, might actually take this up soon and try and add some new wording that specifically governs what the law says about how teachers who agreed to teach the Russian program can be treated.
0: Well, and the one principal you visited with seemed haunted by the fact that she went back to work and worked under the Russians, and she seemed to be on medications to try to get through it. But at the same time, people were angry with her.
1: I was very struck by the case of the school director, Principal Lubov Goja, who seemed absolutely wrecked, destroyed emotionally, physically by the fact that she had agreed to return to school under the Russian occupation. But the fact remains, she did. And that means she lost her job. And the head of Izum's education department, an official who fled before the occupation and returned after it, was really uncompromising in his position. He sees someone like Lubov Goja, other school directors and teachers. There are multiple school principals, dozens of teachers who agreed to return to school and teach the Russian program as essentially... Ideological and political enemies that need to be kept out of the classroom and as far away from children in the educational sphere as possible. He's not at all in a forgiving mood.
0: Yeah. You know, President Zelensky signaled way back in March that Ukraine would treat collaborators harshly. But I wonder if now, given all this gray area that you've reported on, is there any sense... Of moderating that tone, of of looking to have a different approach to people who were living in occupied Ukraine?
1: If you actually look at the number of criminal prosecutions that to date have come out of a place like Azum, they're actually pretty limited. The bar for actually issuing an indictment and arresting someone and putting them on trial seems to be rather high. In Izum, as far as I can tell, it's set at the level of, say, actively aiding the Russian army. There's someone who was charged in absentia; he seems to have fled to Russia, but who gave directions to Russian forces as they were entering Azum, basically told them some shortcuts that they could use to avoid the main roads to outflank the Ukrainian army and how they could better enter the city. There's another case of someone who used his car to deliver Armaments and munitions to Russian positions, uh, troop positions during the occupation. Like those are the kinds of people who are being actively uh, charged and put on trial. But I tend to think that these are all rather serious, less ambiguous than some of the other cases I looked into. The kinds of people who I wrote about in my article, these murkier cases, more complicated cases. It's not an accident that. at least at the current moment, this can always change, but at the current moment, there are not active criminal proceedings or indictments regarding the stories that I looked into, which suggests that things can be quite messy and still the Ukrainian judicial system is not inserting itself into the process.
0: Well, it's interesting because you're right, the criminal charges may not be happening at this point. But the thing that Stood out to me about your reporting is that you pointed to this way that war can wreck a place that I just hadn't considered before. Like, I think about the physical damage of war, I think about buildings being destroyed. You know, I think of, oh, the cities are liberated now, that's great, but the damage left behind. It just seemed to me from your reporting, oh, it's very clear. It's not just about like sweeping up the bricks and all the rest. Like these places are fraught for a while.
1: I was really struck by something that the deputy mayor of Azum told me, someone else who had left the city before it was occupied and returned shortly after its liberation And when I asked him actually about the relatively small number of criminal prosecutions, which some people in Azum are angered by, they would like to see more of their neighbors and citizens, people who they think to be collaborators, put on trial. And they ask the city government, where are these indictments? Where are these trials? And the deputy mayor told me, you know, in a place like Azum, small city, everybody knows everybody else. A criminal charge is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Even worse is having your neighbor turn his or her back on you, wanting to spit in your face, as he told me. That's far more punishing, or can be, in a place like Azum. And I and I and I understood what he meant. What indeed a toll that takes, not just on the individual, but on the polity, even on the on the scale of one small city like a Zoom.
0: I want to return to the story of Pavel Golub just for a minute. What happened to him? Because eventually you've said how he wasn't criminally charged. He was released even though he was detained for a month. Is there a happy ending for him?
1: I don't know if Pavel himself would say his ending is happy. He ended up leaving in January with his parents, first going to Germany, onward to another European country that he asked me not to name, where he's found a job, trying to create a new life for himself, and certainly feeling bitter and confused about everything he lived through in a Zoom both under occupation and after.
0: Does he ever think about returning?
1: I don't know what his plans are in the long term. I don't think he knows what his plans are in the long term. Um, He considers himself uh, certainly Ukrainian, a proud Ukrainian, talks about wanting and waiting for Ukraine to win the war. But his experience with the Ukrainian state has certainly led to some wariness. And I also think of sense of grievance about what he went through and the way he was accused, as he sees it unfairly, uh, for doing the best he could in a really difficult set of circumstances. He's alive. He survived occupation. He's certainly grateful for that. Many people in his Zoom didn't. But he is left with a lot of questions about the experience and and whether it was all worth it.
0: Joshua, I'm really grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Joshua Yaffa is a contributing writer at The New Yorker. He's also the author of Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to look into our membership program. It's known as Slate Plus. The way to find out more is to go to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow.